Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Dean Jarvis back to the show, and we talk about onboarding new assets. We talk about what it means to be operational ready and what an operational readiness plan looks like, and particularly what it looks like from the maintenance perspective. We also talk about what's often left out when we bring new assets on and how that ties into the life cycle and overall, you know, what our equipment is there to do. I really enjoyed this conversation. Dean is an excellent expert in this field, uh, particularly with SAP and the maintenance, the mining space. Um, thanks for listening. And as always, send us your feedback and any thoughts, questions, or ideas for new guests we're happy to hear. Before we jump into our episode, a quick message from our sponsor, NanoPrecise. Hello listeners, this is Steve Doby, host of the Maintenance Disrupted Podcast. As you know, we've got a sponsor, NanoPrecise, and each week we've been bringing you a machine doctor to the rescue. This week is no different. And this week... Machine Doctor in a sugar mill was able to spot an early fault in critical mill operations, thereby saving five hours of downtime. And as we know, downtime is really the key to maintenance savings. Well done, NanoPrecise. If you want more information, go to nanoprecise.io or, of course, give us a shout and we'll get you in touch with the NanoPrecise team. Thanks for listening. Now, here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm Steve Doby, and I've got with me today Dean Jarvis. Welcome back to the show, Dean. How's it going today? Yeah, good, good. It's um, um, Sunday, working on a mine site, and it's my birthday. So there you go. For <laughs> my birthday, I'll get, I'll get work. And thanks for joining today because we're going to start, we're, we're going to talk about a subject that I'm pretty passionate about, and I know you're pretty passionate about as well, and that's acquiring new assets and what we need to do properly to make sure when they arrive on site that they are ready to go. Now, before we really jump into it, I want to ask you a question because it's a term that I've heard and I'm starting to hear it more and more and it's called operational readiness. Have you heard of that term before? And yes, operational readiness is the flavor of the month at the moment. And so, you know, jumping on the flavor of the month bandwagon, what does operational readiness mean to you? Well, to me, because I've been engaged in it for so long, it means a hell of a lot of things. But primarily, what it, it depends on your point of reference on the mine site. So operational readiness to someone, operators might be, it's on the go line, it's ready to go, can I hop in it and drive it, please? <laughs> so, but to the asset management people and the maintenance people and, uh, you know, the operations people, it, operational readiness should mean that machine is ready to go and all of its work management and its parts and its life cycle management are actually inside of your ERP and ready to go. Typically, rarely if it ever happens, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Steve, I've never actually seen it. I'm sure it exists. Because getting it into your ERP is the challenge because you have all your work instructions and all your parts picks. Now, in particular, when you work with an ERP, typically you have to identify it. So it has to be identified. 
it has to have all of its work management, which be be its fixed time replacement stuff, and even the stuff that isn't fixed time. So you're doing condition monitoring in SAP, they call it corrective task list. You could have a corrective task list, you have your bills and materials, you have your whole lot in there, all your work management, your work orders are coming out. Um, even uh, it has its first rebuild been planned because that might be five or six years in the future, but has it been planned? That should stuff that should be all under the operational readiness spanner. And it's a gross oversimplification what I just said, but that's to me, that's what operational readiness is. Now, that's Nirvana. The real world typically runs like this. It turns up on site and everyone tries to jam it in at the end when you're out of budget and out of money and everyone's running around trying to get this thing into SAP or Maximo or Pronto or whatever the software you're using. So there's fantasy and reality and there's, I think the real world is somewhere in between those two. Does that answer your question? I think so. And, you know, the, the one thing I've taken away from my conversations on operational readiness from people is nobody has a consistent definition of what it is. And I, and I'm definitely more in line with what your point of view is there and what your frame of reference is. And it's, you know, how do we make sure that our operation, whether you're the guy driving the truck or the person maintaining it, when this asset comes to site and is assembled at your site or or whatever, when we put it into operations, we can operate it, we can maintain it, and we know how long it's going to last and when what the decommissioning process is. You know, I would generally just call this yeah. life cycle modeling. <laughs> And, you know, your life yeah, cycle analysis, yeah. when you, you buy it, should have that. But this um, operational readiness, I don't mind the term, um, it's, but it is, it's a new term for something that we've been trying to push for, for a long time, right? <laughs> operational readiness in um, dovetails into um, your life cycle model. And it's very simple because really your life cycle model is the whole picture, but it, with your uh, operational readiness, if there's the immediate piece is short term, operational readiness mid term, and operational readiness long term. And so, really, that's the life cycle process. But in the short to medium term stuff, that's typically where most mining companies fall over. And, you know, true stories, because I think true stories are relatable. True story uh, an asset rocks up to a mine site, no one had bothered to put it into the ERP. They go, oh, it's the exact same model as the last one, so we just copy all the data over. It turns out it wasn't the exact same model. It was the next model up. And so everything about the master data was wrong, from the parts to the, to the whole thing. And Those dreaded the serial number breaks. <laughs> yeah, the serial number break. The, get the, the filter kits. None of the filter kits or O-rings match. It's all, it was a giant mess. So really, um, operational readiness should be on top of that. This stuff should be done months in advance and typically you're doing it at the wrong end. Um, I think I think the only way that we're ever going to win and make progress in this is when people start to see how much it, it's the either or equation, how much it costs to do this at the end or how much it costs to do this at the beginning. Now, at the end, it's very, very high cost. You know, someone like, um, you know, typically a consultant, what, six, $7,000 a week? In Australian dollars, um, that's sort of roughly where it sits, five to seven, somewhere in that window, and that can go on for weeks. 
um, wouldn't you be better off spending that money up here, getting your own people on the mine site to perhaps do all the work instructions and the parts cataloging first before you bring the, the, the data consultants along? So there's, there's opportunity there, making it visible to people to understand they could, um, and, and just even the logic, right? So when you start to think about it, just the pure logic of being ready. Like when you go camping, I can guarantee you, because I've done a bit of camping, I have checklists of everything that I need to take and I'll go through and we had a caravan and so in every drawer I had bags of everything and I would tick it off a list and go, yep, yeah, I'm absolutely prepared. There's no surprises right down to the axe and the matches and the, the kindling and, you know, first aid kits and water and, you know, it was just a giant checklist. And I, and I, know I was never that guy on the mic when I'm camping. I'm never that guy that goes, oh, I left this because I didn't leave anything because I had a checklist. Now, typically when a, a huge asset, say a giant truck turns up and and you're trying to squeeze things in at the end, you're not prepared. You're just not. And, and you will miss tons of stuff. And then the stuff that you've missed, all your day-to-day -day stuff actually rides over the top of it and you'll never get ahead. You're always coming from behind if you don't do your operational readiness piece right. And it, it happens all the time and it's a continuous recurring theme. What do we do about it? The only the piece is the education piece. People have to get educated or start to, we start, but the other thing we have to do is start bringing back uh, a lot of the older men that know this stuff. So a lot of the men in their 50s, 60s and 70s that have been around for 20 or 30 years know this stuff. Start looking for them, start employing them, start listening to them because they'll say, well, okay, if this thing's rocking up, how about we think about final drives, transmissions, driveline, engines, spare trays, tyre supply, rim supply, um, how are we going to manage that? Have we got all the PM kits sorted? No, well, let's get the PM kits sorted. What are we doing at midlife? Oh, midlife, we're doing this. All right, let's plan that out because we have supply issues. Okay, what are we doing at um, end of life? Oh, we don't know. Do you have a procedure? Do you pull it all apart or do you get a professional to come in and just cut it up and take it away as scrap metal? You make all those decisions, right? And get experienced people. Stop relying on Google search. It's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the biggest thing. It's, you know, what's what's your plan? And I think most maintenance yeah, people yeah, should plan? understand that planned work is more cost effective than break-in work. And if you're doing things after an asset's commissioned, if you're trying to come up with work plans or, or do any anything yeah. that should have been in the commissioning stage, it's going to be far more expensive. And there's going to potentially be a lot of value you missed out of that asset because it wasn't performing as well as it should have. The yeah, missed, missed opportunity because you didn't maintain it properly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, you know, now, obviously you're, you're in this space and it's something you've been dealing with quite a bit. Now, what is kind of the biggest, your biggest pet peeve or biggest issue that you're seeing out there when people are bringing in new assets, whether it's fixed or mobile environment or, you know, at the end of the day, I think the issues are, are still the same. Okay, so my biggest pet peeve at the moment is that the, the people in charge bringing the asset on are typically project management people. Now, project management people are precisely that project management. They're not maintenance experts. They're certainly not ERP experts. All they care about is get the asset here, get it basically functioning, and then wipe my hands off. 
lives. That's my pet peeve. So if MindSites, anyone on MindSites is listening to this podcast, take this away. Don't put those people in charge of bringing assets onto the MindSite. Put an asset manager or a maintenance professional in there because typically they're doing more harm than good. Uh, they get a tick in the box that yes, they ordered it on this day and it arrived on site this day and it's operationally ready. That's bullshit. That doesn't happen because the project management people have an agenda that doesn't align with the maintenance agenda and the operational readiness agenda. And typically those people are inexperienced, they know nothing. And I'm seeing it, I've seen it rise in the last 20 years, because years ago, if we brought 20, 30 years ago, if we've got a, uh, an asset, the purchasing asset, have a guess who was in charge of purchasing the asset? The maintenance manager, the maintenance foreman, even at the first one I looked at, um, he was in charge of that. It wasn't given to some bright young person just out of university. It wasn't, it never was. So why are we entrusting it to these kids, these children? They know nothing. Stop using them. They're doing more harm than good. That's a pet peeve. That's my soapbox moment. But when, when we, when we um, so had a professional been involved, they go, okay, I've been around this machine for quite a while. I know what we need. Let, let's, let's, um, let's break it down into bite-sized chunks and let's you know, get into this. So um, project management people, Stay the hell away from operational readiness unless you've had that experience. But if your project manager assigned to get something on site, by all means do that, but understand there's a piece that you can never do because you haven't got the experience. Yeah, bottom line. Uh, I've seen that do doing a lot of damage to be caught on. Yeah, and you know, I've seen it too. Like I was at I was going through a refinery that was just being just going through startup and they're going through the commissioning pieces and I'm walking around with uh with a, a millwright or one of the technicians there. And he's like, so I'm supposed to go around and do the commissioning piece and check off that, you know, this pump was installed correctly. We get to get there. He's like, I'm being pressured from the project manager to check off that this pump's installed. We don't have a pump here, but they want to check it off so that they can move on to the next one. Obviously that's a pretty extreme case, but you know, it is, and it's funny because it also goes the other way too because a lot of maintenance people are terrible at managing projects because it's not our mindset it's you know we've got a, a different mindset there's maintenance is never done <laughs> where a project yeah. has a start and a finish right and so it's uh it's i've seen projects too that are managed by maintenance people rebuild projects uh, i myself have been part of them like I'm a maintenance person getting more into project management stuff. And it's like, it is a very different world. It's a different skill set, And, you know, somebody that has those skill sets married together is, is going to be going to be hugely valuable in, in that uh, operational readiness piece. Cause if you bring in just a project manager, you're not going to have an asset that's ready to go. But if you just get a maintenance person to do it, your project is going to suffer and there's going to be lots of other things that, that suffer. Right. So there's that, there's that gap that needs to be filled between those two types of roles uh, to come out with that ideal person to, to manage these commissioning projects. And that's why that's why in the project management teams, you should have both. You should have your project manager, I 100% agree, but they mm -hmm. should not work completely autonomously or separate from the maintenance people. And that's where a good project manager or a smart person would come up to, man, uh, to them and say, well, okay, I'm not understanding this operational readiness piece. Can you educate me? Let me know what I need to do as a project manager to get this asset right. Now, now typically, this is where mining 
companies can save themselves a hell of a lot of money. Um, the company I work for, we have a checklist. And we typically send that to clients and say, if you supply this list of things, if you get all the work management uh, instructions written and you get all the parts catalogued in your part system, we'll come along and do the master data piece and SAP. Not one person has ever, ever, ever given us the complete set of work instructions and the complete set of um, SAP material numbers. So typically that comes back to us. So I rock up on site. And I just recently launched 200 parts in, um, to get catalogued in SAP. But that's a process in and of itself. And anyone that's involved in SAP cataloging piece um, in Australia knows that it's pretty heavy going. This particular company, um, I've used bulk upload sheets before. This company doesn't like that. They just like one sheet per part. So you have to put 200 PDFs to get 200 parts catalogued. How long do you think that takes? Now, that takes a long time. And you're paying me to do that. That's fine, you can pay me that to do that, but how about you do that six months before I turn up? And the other one is uh, the work instructions. I can sit and write work instructions for your kit any day of the week, and I can spend months doing it. But if you get a team of people on site that are trained to do it and do it on site, you can have all that done and you can have all your parts done. And when I rock up, I don't need to do that. So you could save yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars on every project if you did those two things. And do you think anyone does it? No. So what do they do? They end up pissing and moaning about how much I cost. I don't care how much I cost. It's got nothing to do with anything. Fuck me. It's crazy, man. They piss and whine about things that they created. They created this monster, right? And then they piss and whine about it. It just it fascinates me because... And, and, and then I thought about that on a deeper level and I thought, well, that's, that's simply a visibility issue. We've got to make that issue visible. So here it is in a nutshell. Do the work instructions and the parts before I turn up. Work instructions and parts. Now, I can tell you why it doesn't happen. Work instructions don't get written because typically you give it to a guy on site who's good at writing documents. How many guys on site are actually really good at that? There's a handful, maybe, but they normally have a day job. But it might be a planner or a parts coordinator or someone like that. So they're trying to jam that in between. How successful are they to jam that in between? It's going to take them months, right? So then they go, well, we'll use a dedicated resource. We'll use these bright young things out of university. And I'm all for that because those kids are bright and they're very good at with, um, creating documents in Word and blah, blah, blah but then they, they don't have the know-how to put the document together in the way that an electrician would execute a task or a fitter would execute a task. They don't have that. So you're up against it there. And then um, with the parts cataloging, a lot of people throw their hands in the air and go, oh, it's too hard. Because you can validate all your parts load files and get green lights and send them off and the bot that reads them will send them back. So then it all becomes too hard. Hence the rise of the squirrel store. People go, it's too hard to get parts cataloged at the company. So they buy, um, do an out-of-budget CapEx uh, request, put a heap of parts in a container and hence the rise of the squirrel store. And the squirrel stores keep rising on a mine site because it's hard to catalogue the parts put in the store. So there's all these opportunities I'm seeing. There's common recurring themes. And this is, well, I'm glad we're doing this podcast because if anyone's listening, listen or your tongue will make you deaf. I hope listen, we have a few listeners. your tongue will make you deaf. <laughs> Listen or your tongue will make you deaf. Listen, because the, these are the opportunities. This is where a lot of money gets burned. Consequently, anywhere where money gets burned, money can be saved. 
I don't honestly, Steve. I don't care if anyone listens or don't. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but if if they start to listen to the voice of reason, they start to think, hmm, maybe if we have a look at this, start spending some of your uh, your budget, especially in mining companies, start looking at some of these things. It's actually low hanging fruit and easy to do, um, and it's it's actually worth it, especially in the project space when you're constantly bringing on stuff on site. Um, that over the years, the money just piles up. It goes into the millions. Um, it's something that's worth looking at. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like it's, you know, it's, and finding these cost-saving areas and, and people, we like to focus on, you know, the physical things that go wrong to save money. And But when you look at how some of these projects are managed and how we start up and commission things like you know a mine site is a good example because the equipment's always coming and going and so having a, a robust commissioning program and and making sure those processes are set up are going to save piles of money and you know going back to it it's going to increase the performance of the asset as well because you're going to have those work instructions ready and when it breaks because it will break your guys will have what they need to go out and fix it. And they're not going to be, uh, you know, it, it's the whole wrench time conversation, right? Like what, and, yeah, you know, if we have that stuff done up front, we're going to maximize our wrench time and which is just going to ultimately lead to better performance. So. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's another part of the conversation is that if the operational readiness piece is done intelligently, it's the future payoff. It's the future payoff. So it's just like front-end loading. If you do that intelligently, and I think that's hard to quantify, but if we could make some of those figures, and even the money around it, visible to um, you know, chief operating officers and chief financial officers and mine managers, that um, I was just saying it's going to cancel. Give me a second. Typically, if we can make it uh, obvious to them that that if the, the dollar investment here pays here, up here in the timeline. And uh, typically that's on us as asset management, but we should be making some more of that visible. But again, it's having the time and the people to, to, to make that visible. Yeah. So, and, yeah. you know, and one of the other things I've noticed and which causes a lot of stress, particularly at the end of the project, and, you know, a lot of these things aren't thought up up front, but there's a lot of things that get missed and you know, you, you've got your project managers and your asset managers and you know, as soon as you miss one item in your project scope and you start to go over budget, then it's, then the conversations move away from what's gonna give us an operationally ready piece of equipment or high quality piece of equipment to how do we save cost now? And that, as soon as that conversation starts to happen, you, you start to shift the result of what you're working on. Like it's gonna, it's, you know, well, we need to, we need to cut costs. So, you know, what can we do in the meantime? Well, in this case, maybe they cut making the work instructions or cut doing something else or whatever, whatever it is. And again, the asset suffers and you end up paying for it yeah. more, more later. Like we need to have better understanding from that group that you're just talking about that, Hey, um, you know, we've got these assets that we're starting to maintain and um, you know, we need to make sure we know how to do it. Cause in the long run, we expect it to produce value for us, but we need to 
invest appropriately. It's not just a truck costs $5 million or whatever it is. It's, it's $5 million plus here's all the extra costs to get things started. And this stuff is key to make sure we get our value out of it. Yeah, and it, it's it, at the end of the day, like I said, I find it fascinating. They'll spend millions on something, and that's your money. A truck is a money making machine because it's moving your product from one point to another point, ultimately to get it through some sort of a process so that it's turned into a saleable product. Whether you're selling coal, ore um, out of the ground, or you take the facility and turning it into metal. So, trucks, you know, drills, you know, at the start of the process, there's some sort of a drill. There's trucks in the middle moving it, and at the end, there's some sort of port operation or movement operation. So, obviously, these things are part of a linear process, and, and you, it, it, to me, they're just mini money making machines. It's a money a, a truck going past. I, I did a study once uh, on what a truckload of oil was worth, uh, and you know, based on the grade of this open cut pit, we worked out you know the tons multiplied by the grade by specific gravity and so on and the long-term metal price and you go well, okay that's what it's worth it was surprising what it was worth you know it was worth a lot of money so wouldn't you wouldn't your maintenance mechanism be the protective mechanism for that so maintenance is not a cost maintenance is action investment in the tons of ore in the back so i thought everyone's been looking at maintenance the wrong way for many years and i'll of which we need a paradigm shift in the way we look at maintenance. Every dollar spent on maintenance is guaranteeing more tons in the back of that truck. And every dollar you don't spend on maintenance on that truck makes you taking all its ability to move that all out of the back of the truck. So maintenance isn't maintenance, really. Maintenance is a productive support mechanism. Maintenance is not maintenance, a productive support mechanism. And I wish we could get that paradigm shift to happen because you can bet your life that um, as soon as people start to make that connection, they'll be more inclined to think of maintenance as a help rather than a hindrance. Um, because there's nothing worse than a truck down for five days. Because typically for five days, look at the missed opportunity if the ore's high grade. So you're in the part of the pit that's high grade and you're, you're getting tens of thousands of dollars worth every time you move a, a load of, of ore. You take that for five days and you take that out of your business equation, wouldn't it be better off to restore its reliability to a level where it wasn't broken down for five days because of catastrophic failure, because you took things too far down the PF curve, because you didn't use your condition monitoring, you didn't use your early alarm systems, you didn't use your um, oil monitoring, your uh, vibration analysis or your um, thermal imaging, you know, you didn't do the servicing properly, you know, all these things. I mean, I was on a mine site once where one of the trucks, a whole fleet of the trucks actually, the worst one was 600 odd hours overdue on its uh, oil change. I mean, that isn't actually going to help that asset. Basically, the more particulates that get into the oil, you're turning it into grinding paste, really. Um, you know, these things are not helpful. It doesn't guarantee that movement of tonnes. So yeah, there has to be a shift there as well. Got a bit off track there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, Dean. I love it. But it's about the opportunities to save money um, for mining companies. If they um, at the project management phase and, and operational readiness and tying that all in, and they can save a lot of money if they actually do the uh, work instructions and the parts first. Um, yeah, and then we can start to do the work management um, second. But but once again, don't do it once it gets on site. 
that becomes expensive and messy and typically people are running out of money, budgets are over. And that really puts um, contractors like myself in a really sticky position because by the time you get to my age, if you're trying to rush me, I'm going to tell you where to go. And, um, and well, that's just a fact because if you, do you want quality outcome or do you want, do you want me to poke something in there that just works? Because the thing is, it's your professional reputation as well. Because if you're just poking stuff in there just to get it over the line, and then someone looks at it and goes, who did this? Oh, Dean Jarvis did that. Well, my reputation goes out the toilet, mate. So you either you want a quality outcome or you don't. So I tend not to engage in that nonsense much anymore. But um, this this is all on the mining companies though, they, and, and big companies. If, if you want to jam stuff in at the end, be prepared for consequence as well. And that's the other conversation that's worth having is consequence. There's consequences to jamming stuff in at the end. And, it, and, and in terms of cost and quality and outcomes. And we really need to quantify that better. Well, one of my favorite things that companies like to talk about is risk. And yeah. uh, I kind of laugh a bit because you look at risk and you're like, you, you don't understand risk because you're, the decisions you're making to are high risk decisions. The decisions like, you think about the consequence of failure and the likelihood of it to happen. Well, we know that if you don't set things up properly to begin with, there's going to be failure. And what those consequences are, are just simply the production numbers that you bought the unit for. Right. And time and time again, as we purchase new things, it surprises me that we're not willing. Like, it's always a rush. Let's get this in. Let's get it in now. Let's get it running. Let's do this, this, and this. We need to start making money. Oh, but you want to spend a little bit of money up front to make sure that it's done prop, that we have everything in place. No, we'll sort that out. We'll sort that out as we go. That's the maintenance guy's job to figure out later. And it's it's a frustrating mindset and it's a very reactive mindset. And you know, it's it's something that we need to get away from because that's when you end up with mixed fleets like um, a mobile equipment. If you have 15 different unit manufacturers for a similar type of unit, like that's that's ridiculous and just causes way requires way more upkeep than if you had, you know, a hundred of one type versus, you know, 20 yeah, of exactly. three types. Right. It, it, but I think so more on the subject, I think we have to think of it as percentage of cost. So if you go, well, okay, the work, uh, the uh, operational readiness piece costs X amount of dollars and therefore should be depending on the complexity of the equipment because typically the bigger it is, the more complex it is. Um, so for, um, for high complexity items, we, uh, there would be a percentage of its cost that would be considered operational readiness cost. And then um, there would be a percentage of cost that would be its work uh, management. And so it'd be coming up with a realistic figure. Now, true story, Very. this is another good true story and a, and a, a real good example um, I was working for a project manager once and he said, oh, I only allowed $5,000 for SAP. Five grand for, to put all of the work, all of the work instructions, all of the parts uh, to create task lists, items and plans, create the construction types, the whole thing, the assemblies and the sub-assemblies and the bombs. And he allowed five grand for that. I said, you're kidding, mate. That doesn't even buy me for a week. So what, how, how are you going to do that? Oh, but the whole team operates like that. So you got it wrong, buddy. Um, but that particular project required three months, so 12 weeks, say five grand a week. So there was 60 grand. 
and he'd only allowed five. So he's already $55,000 behind the eight ball. So there you go. That's, that's, that's the cost and understanding that and understanding the investment now and the payoff into the future. Because the other thing is, if you front end load uh, your ERPs properly with all the work and all the parts and the bills and materials and your supply chains and the whole piece, for the next 10 to 15 years, you don't have to worry about it. It's a set and forget. But if you don't do it properly, you, you've got to chase it for the next 10 to 15 years. And those are the two options, really. You would have seen a lot of this, Steve, yourself. Oh, it's all all too painful. <laughs> See it yeah, the, very frequently. The truth, yeah, well, the thing is, it's the problem talking to someone like me, the, just the reality of it, you see it everywhere and thinking, well, when will it get better? Well, it starts, it gets better with podcasts like this because it only takes that one person to listen in and go, yeah, yeah, yeah these well, guys I, are speaking some truth. Well, and I know it kind of frustrates people, but it goes back to it. Like it's it's the leadership aspect and and getting, you're right, like listening to the podcast and takes a special kind of person to listen to a maintenance and reliability podcast outside of their normal maintenance yeah. outside their normal job and working hours. So <laughs> appreciate all the listeners that listen to us on the commute and everything like that. But it's, you know, there's those people are, are going to make the difference, but they're, they run yeah. up against such, uh, such challenges and leaders that don't still run this very aggressive and I, uh, maybe macho kind of industry leadership. That's like, I'm the boss. This is the way I do it. This is the way it's going to be done. And it's, it can be really hard to make change in, in the maintenance space. And so like when we start looking at where we really solve problems, it does always come back to that leadership aspect. But, but when you, when you talk about the leadership aspect and, and a number of the research done in the last 20 to 30 years show that the, the real high end leaders in any organization are typically high on the sociopath scale. I think that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Because typically, the, the higher on the sociopath or psychopath scale these people are, the more aggressive they are, the more they get things done. That's fine. I want to engage with those people because I can I can still set stroke his ego. I can still make him look like a superhero if you just fucking listen. So if you listen and let me get the, the, the job done properly, I'll make those machines perform to such a level that you won't need the extra machines. You'll use your assets properly because typically they're just asset heavy and they have lots and lots of trucks and lots and lots of loaders and lots and lots of diggers that they don't necessarily need because um, of the breakdown rate, they, they park one up and grab another one. And that's fine if your mind can afford that and you've got huge um, operating budgets and you've got huge profit margins for your all, knock yourself out, do that. But if you want to run a leaner operation and um, and you're a, you're a boss sitting at the top and you want to look good, start listening to your asset management experts. We'll cut your fleet in half, make the, the, the what's left perform properly with proper life cycle management strategies so that you're not constantly at these machines. You're, and, and getting back to the 80-20 rule, getting back to 80% planned work and 20% breakdown. Most mine sites the other way around. It's 80% breakdown, 20% planned. And then uh, true, another true story the other day, I heard a place uh, that were in their PM schedule in one week uh, in one week, one day, they were eight services behind in one day <laughs> because of breakdowns. Eight, you imagine eight big pieces of kit not being serviced because that has an effect down here too, down the track. Um, 
you know, and it's because they're in breakdown mode because all, all their machinery is a, is a well, let's be honest, let's call it what it is, their machinery is a mess. So you, there's, there's a heap of good, so I'm appealing to the upper end of town, the CFOs, the, the chief operating officers, the, uh, the mine managers, um, if you've got a bunch of assets, because start to look at it like Tonka trucks. You've got all these Tonka trucks running around and I want my Tonkas to run all the time. Well, if they're not running all the time, they're not making me money. And, and why are they not running all the time? Well, let's look at your top 10 causes of failure. What's the top 10? It's this, 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 and this. I'm like, okay, well, that's where we'll put our maintenance effort and I can use them more often. I can pay my Tonkas way more often rather than having parked up. So it, it's, a, it's a simple... I know I'm oversimplifying it, but at the end of the day, it's listening to the voice of experience <coughs> and it's being ready. It's, it's um, kind of future-proofing your, your operation, actually, because they talk about risk. You take away the risk and future-proof your operation by um, um, really clever strategies up front. Um, this pays dividends. This pays money. This is, this is a money equation. It's not about maintenance. It's about money. It's really simple. Yeah, and mm. you, you know what? And as a maintenance person, like maintenance is easy. It's it's the people around it and getting people to buy into the proper maintenance decisions, which is hard. And a lot of them say we do database decisions, but at the end of the day, you show them the data, and we need to do a better job of making them helping them understand it so that they actually make database decisions. Well, and but here's the <laughs> but here's the here's the challenge for when when. When a mining department or, say, a mining operation is looking at some of this stuff, it comes down to four really simple questions, and this is four simple questions that managers always should ask. You've got to ask the right questions. You've got to ask the right people. Then you've got to listen to the right voice. And then you have to test with good science and common sense. If, you, if any mine manager that listens to this could just employ that next time he interfaces with an um, asset management expert, He'll go a long way. Four questions. Just, just work with that methodology. Ask the right questions. Ask the right people. Listen to the right voice. Now, that's where it goes wrong. Because typically the close advisors to this guy are typically not asset-centric or come from a maintenance uh, background. So he's probably listening to the wrong voice. And typically the most powerful voice on the mine side is production. We've got to get this many tonnes and we have to hit our KPIs and we have to hit our targets. Well, you fucking peanut, if you listen to me, listen to this. <laughs> if you listen, right, I will help you not only get those tonnes but exceed them. Have you ever thought about that? And that's the appealing piece because you go, well, I'm going to look at the strategies that we're using currently on this fleet and go, well, okay, that <laughs> it's it's not a sustainability equation for more tonnes. It might be an equation that's actually going to take away tonnes over its lifetime. But if I can guarantee those tonnes through a strategy and look at the payoff ratio, um, you, you get more buy-in. So they need to listen. So ask the right questions, the right people, listen to the right voice, and then test it with good science and common sense. So if I tell you something and you're a mine manager and go, hmm, I'm going to test what Dino just said, good science and common sense. So he goes, gets it. To another um, some sort of mind site and says what do you think about this this guy's telling me this i don't know what's what um that'll soon prove what i'm saying is right or wrong simple it's just a litmus test 
good science and common sense. And so it doesn't make sense. The, the way this person talks and articulates stuff, is this guy the real deal or is he just full of it? Come on, it doesn't take that long to work stuff out. Oh, that's great, Dean. <laughs> and I think, we, I think with that, that's a perfect time to end it. And I, I love those four questions. And uh, I'm going to promote that. I'm going to, well, sort of steal it from me. I'll put your name on it all. But it's it's true. And No, no. Uh, well, we must, we, must give credit, <laughs> we must give credit to the guy who came up with those four questions. So that's a friend of mine who's writing a book on this, Peter Cahoon. So Peter um, sent me a draft of some of the chapters of his book. And in those four questions stood out to me. Um, and that, that's Peter's. So, you know, I use that with Peter's permission, of course. But um, and I'm quite happy to promote Pete because he's a consultant as well. He's done a lot of uh, maintenance work um, uh, in the military. And, um, yeah, he's done a hell of a lot there. But um, his book on um, – that's something that probably we should do a podcast on is his book, some chapters in his book. It's just fantastic he's in his 60s and had quite a high-end career he's got some really good stuff to say in the maintenance space absolutely we'll get that we should have him on absolutely uh, i'm gonna be looking him up right after this so um yeah send me his information we'll definitely get him on but before we wrap up there dean um what are you working on where can people find you oh um yeah yeah well i work for the uh, asset on so i um, encourage people to contact asset on especially in the sap space but we also have a i was talking to our uh, software developer stuart burkhart <clears throat> and he's evolving the software that he started a few years back called on plan and it's evolving down the cms pass so they're trying to get it as and i think it's a I think it's an intelligent option. I'm not just plugging my own company it's because I've studied it and it's had all the uh, men and other friend of mine, we discussed it a few years back about what that would look like to actually have a CMMS that was written from a maintenance perspective. And on plan was remarkably similar to the discussions me and my friend had. And I thought, oh, isn't it refreshing that someone thinks that way and now it's in the software. So you can identify an asset, it can output to um tablets i think your company's using it yeah uh yeah i think we've got a trial going on <laughs> you got a trial i think you've got um you're looking that's at. that's how i got connected this. with you <laughs> yeah that's true that's right um and i'm not just plugging it for that sake but um as it evolves down the cms path it'll be interesting to see where it goes and if it becomes useful it might be a viable option because typically if you're using you know sap is you know, quite complex and complicated and it's perfection. I've always said SAP is perfection, but that can be its problem. It's too perfect. Um, and I'm not saying that on plan's imperfect, it's perfect, but it just comes at it from a completely different angle. It's even got the crack management stuff, the inspection stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely post all those links there in the, yeah, in the description yeah, for sure. so people can get a hold of those. And uh, no, really look, appreciate your time, Dean. And uh, looking forward to having you back on the show sometime soon, maybe with uh, yeah, with we'll, your other colleague there. We'll hook up. Yeah, we'll hook up with Cahoon. Hey, I think you really enjoy um, his stories and his experience too, because like it's a it's a fascinating to just listen to the things that he's done with his career. And people that live at that level, you don't really get to hear about them that much. So he's done some pretty exciting stuff. So it's always good to get that level of thinking as well. Absolutely. Well, cheers, well, thanks, buddy. Dean. Thanks for your time. Enjoy your day. Absolutely. You too.